Some 18 years ago the author of this course made his first trip to the little town of Lumberport, West Virginia, at that time the only means of transportation leading from Clarksburg, the largest nearby center, to Lumberport, was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad and an interurban electric line which ran within three miles of the town, one could walk the three miles if he chose. Upon arrival at Clarksburg I found that the only train going to Lumberport in the forenoon had already gone, and not wishing to wait for the later afternoon train I made the trip by trolley, with the intention of walking the three miles. On the way down the rain began to pour, and those three miles had to be navigated on foot, through deep yellow mud. When I arrived at Lumberport my shoes and pants were muddy, and my disposition was none the better for the experience. The first person I met was V.L. Horner, who was then cashier of the Lumberport Bank. In a rather loud tone of voice I asked of him, why do you not get that trolley line extended from the junction over to Lumberport so your friends can get in and out of town without drowning in mud? Did you see a river with high banks, at the edge of the town, as you came in? He asked. I replied that I had seen it. Well, he continued, that's the reason we have no street cars running into town. The cost of a bridge would be about $100,000, and that is more than the company owning the trolley line is willing to invest. We have been trying for 10 years to get them to build a line into town. Trying. I exploded. How hard have you tried? We have offered them every inducement we could afford, such as free right-of-way from the junction into the town, and free use of the streets, but that bridge is the stumbling block. They simply will not stand the expense. Claim they cannot afford such an expense for the small amount of revenue they would receive from the three-mile extension. Then the law of success philosophy began to come to my rescue. I asked Mr. Horner if he would take a walk over to the river with me, that we might look at the spot that was causing so much inconvenience. He said he would be glad to do so. When we got to the river I began to take inventory of everything in sight. I observed that the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad tracks ran up and down the river banks, on both sides of the river, that the county road crossed the river on a rickety wooden bridge, both approaches to which were over several strands of railroad track, as the railroad company had its switching yards at that point. While we were standing there a freight train blocked the crossing and several teams stopped on both sides of the train, waiting for an opportunity to get through. The train kept the road blocked for about 25 minutes. With this combination of circumstances in mind it required but little imagination to see that three different parties were or could be interested in the building of the bridge such as would be needed to carry the weight of a streetcar. It was obvious that the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company would be interested in such a bridge, because that would remove the county road from their switching tracks, and save them a possible accident on the crossing, to say nothing of much loss of time and expense in cutting trains to allow teams to pass. It was also obvious that the county commissioners would be interested in the bridge, because it would raise the county road to a better level and make it more serviceable to the public. And, of course the street railway company was interested in the bridge, but IT did not wish to pay the entire cost. All these facts passed through my mind as I stood there and watched the freight train being cut for the traffic to pass through. A definite chief AIM took place in my mind. Also, a definite plan for its attainment. The next day I got together a committee of townspeople, consisting of the mayor, councilmen and some leading citizens, and called on the division superintendent of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company, at Grafton. We convinced him that it was worth one-third of the cost of the bridge to get the county road off his company's tracks. Next we went to the county commissioners and found them to be quite enthusiastic over the possibility of getting a new bridge by paying for only one-third of it. They promised to pay their one-third providing we could arrange for the other two-thirds. We then went to the president of the traction company that owned the trolley line, at Fairmont, and laid before him an offer to donate all the rights of way and pay for two-thirds of the cost of the bridge providing he would begin building the line into town promptly. 
We found him receptive, also. Three weeks later a contract had been signed between the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company, the Monongahela Valley Traction Company and the County Commissioners of Harrison County, providing for the construction of the bridge, one-third of its cost to be paid by each. Two months later the right-of-way was being graded and the bridge was underway, and three months after that street cars were running into Lumberport on regular schedule. This incident meant much to the town of Lumberport, because it provided transportation that enabled people to get in and out of the town without undue effort. It also meant a great deal to me, because it served to introduce me as one who got things done. Two very definite advantages resulted from this transaction. The chief counsel for the traction company gave me a position as his assistant, and later, on it was the means of an introduction which led to my appointment as the advertising manager of the LaSalle Extension University. Lumberport, West Virginia, was then, and still is a small town, and Chicago was a large city and located a considerable distance away, but news of initiative and leadership has a way of taking on wings and traveling. Four of the fifteen laws of success were combined in the transaction described, namely, a definite chief AIM, self-confidence, imagination and initiative and leadership. The law of doing more than paid for also entered, somewhat, into the transaction, because I was not offered anything and in fact did not expect pay for what I did. To be perfectly frank I appointed myself to the job of getting the bridge built more as a sort of challenge to those who said it could not be done than I did with the expectation of getting paid for it. By my attitude I rather intimated to Mr. Horner that I could get the job done, and he was not slow to snap me up and put me to the test. It may be helpful to call attention here to the part which imagination played in this transaction. For ten years the townspeople of Lumberport had been trying to get a streetcar line built into town. It must not be concluded that the town was without men of ability, because that would be inaccurate. In fact there were many men of ability in the town, but they had been making the mistake which is so commonly made by us all, of trying to solve their problem through one single source, whereas there were actually three sources of solution available to them. $100,000 was too much for one company to assume, for the construction of a bridge, but when the cost was distributed between three interested parties the amount to be borne by each was more reasonable. The question might be asked, why did not some of the local townsmen think of this three-way solution? In the first place they were so close to their problem that they failed to take a perspective, bird's eye view of it, which would have suggested the solution. This, also, is a common mistake, and one that is always avoided by great leaders. In the second place these townspeople had never before coordinated their efforts or worked as an organized group with the sole purpose in mind of finding a way to get a streetcar line built into town. This, also, is another common error made by men in all walks of life that a failure to work in unison, in a thorough spirit of cooperation. I, being an outsider, had less difficulty in getting cooperative action than one of their own group might have had. Too often there is a spirit of selfishness in small communities which prompts each individual to think that his ideas should prevail. It is an important part of the leader's responsibility to induce people to subordinate their own ideas and interests for the good of the whole, and this applies to matters of a civic, business, social, political, financial or industrial nature. Success, no matter what may be one's conception of that term, is nearly always a question of one's ability to get others to subordinate their own individualities and follow a leader. The leader who has the personality and the imagination to induce his followers to accept his plans and carry them out faithfully is always an able leader. The next lesson, on imagination, will take you still further into the art of tactful leadership. In fact leadership and imagination are so closely allied and so essential for success that one cannot be successfully applied without the other. Initiative is the moving force that pushes the leader ahead, but imagination is the guiding spirit that tells him which way to go. 
Imagination enabled the author of this course to analyze the Lumberport Bridge problem, break it up into its three component parts, and assemble these parts in a practical working plan. Nearly every problem may be so broken up into parts which are more easily managed, as parts, than they are when assembled as a whole. Perhaps one of the most important advantages of imagination is that it enables one to separate all problems into their component parts and to reassemble them in more favorable combinations. It has been said that all battles in warfare are won or lost, not on the firing line, after the battle begins, but back of the lines, through the sound strategy, or the lack of it, used by the generals who plan the battles. What is true of warfare is equally true in business, and in most other problems which confront us throughout life. We win or lose according to the nature of the plans we build and carry out, a fact which serves to emphasize the value of the laws of initiative and leadership, imagination, self-confidence and a definite chief aim. With the intelligent use of these four laws one may build plans, for any purpose whatsoever, which cannot be defeated by any person or group of persons who do not employ or understand these laws. There is no escape from the truth here stated. Organized effort is effort which is directed according to a plan that was conceived with the aid of imagination, guided by a definite chief aim, and given momentum with initiative and self-confidence. These four laws blend into one and become a power in the hands of a leader. Without their aid effective leadership is impossible. You are now ready for the lesson on imagination. Read that lesson with the thought in mind of all that has been here stated and it will take on a deeper meaning. Life is not a goblet to be drained, it is a measure to be filled. Hadley. Intolerance. And after the lesson visit with the author. If you must give expression to prejudice and hatred and intolerance, do not speak it, but write it, write it in the sands, near the water's edge. When the dawn of intelligence shall spread over the eastern horizon of human progress, and ignorance and superstition shall have left their last footprints on the sands of time, it will be recorded in the last chapter of the book of man's crimes that his most grievous sin was that of intolerance. The bitterest intolerance grows out of religious, racial and economic prejudices and differences of opinion. How long, O God, until we poor mortals will understand the folly of trying to destroy one another because we are of different religious beliefs and racial tendencies? Our allotted time on this earth is but a fleeting moment. Like a candle, we are lighted, shine for a moment, and flicker out. Why can we not learn to so live during this brief earthly visit that when the great caravan called death draws up and announces this visit completed we will be ready to fold our tents and silently follow out into the great unknown without fear and trembling? I am hoping that I will find no Jews or Gentiles, Catholics or Protestants, Germans, Englishmen or Frenchmen when I shall have crossed the bar to the other side. I am hoping that I will find there only human souls, brothers and sisters all, unmarked by race, creed or color, for I shall want to be done with intolerance so I may rest in peace throughout eternity. You will see at the top of the previous page a picture which describes the futility of combat. The two male deer have engaged in a fight to the finish, each believing that he will be the winner. Off at the side the female awaits the victor, little dreaming that tomorrow the bones of both combatants will be bleaching in the sun. Poor foolish animals, someone will say. Perhaps, but not very different from the man family. Man engages his brothers in mortal combat because of competition. The three major forms of competition are sex, economic and religious in nature. Twenty years ago a great educational institution was doing a thriving business and rendering a worthy service to thousands of students. The two owners of the school married two beautiful and talented young women, who were especially accomplished in the art of piano playing. The two wives became involved in an argument as to which one was the more accomplished in this art. The disagreement was taken up by each of the husbands. They became bitter enemies. 
Now the bones of that once prosperous school lie bleaching in the sun. The two bucks shown in the picture above locked horns over the attention of the doe. The two man bucks locked horns over the selfsame impulse. In one of the great industrial plants two young foremen locked horns because one received a promotion which the other believed he should have had. For more than five years the silent undertow of hatred and intolerance showed itself. The men under each of the foremen became inoculated with the spirit of dislike which they saw cropping out in their superiors. Slowly the spirit of retaliation began to spread over the entire plant. The men became divided into little cliques. Production began to fall off. Then came financial difficulty and finally bankruptcy for the company. Now the bones of a once prosperous business lie. Bleaching in the sun, and the two foremen and several thousand others were compelled to start all over again, in another field. Down in the mountains of West Virginia lived two peaceful families of mountain folk, the Hatfields and the McCoys. They had been friendly neighbors for three generations. A razorback pig belonging to the McCoy family crawled through the fence into the Hatfield family's cornfield. The Hatfields turned their hound loose on the pig. The McCoys retaliated by killing the dog. Then began a feud that has lasted for three generations and cost many lives of the Hatfields and McCoys. In a fashionable suburb of Philadelphia certain gentlemen of wealth have built their homes. In front of each house the word intolerance is written. One man builds a high steel fence in front of his house. The neighbor next to him, not to be outdone, builds a fence twice as high. Another buys a new motor car and the man next door goes him one better by purchasing two new cars. One remodels his house adding a colonial-style porch. The man next door adds a new porch and a Spanish-style garage for good measure. The big mansion on top of the hill gives a reception which brings a long line of motor cars filled with people who have nothing in particular in common with the host. Then follows a series of receptions all down the Gold Coast line, each trying to outshine all the others. The mister, but they don't call him that in fashionable neighborhoods, goes to business in the back seat of a Rolls Royce that is managed by a chauffeur and a footman. Why does he go to business? To make money, of course. Why does he want more money when he already has millions of dollars? So he can keep on outdoing his wealthy neighbors. Poverty has some advantages, it never drives those who are poverty-stricken to lock horns in the attempt to out-poverty their neighbors. Wherever you see men with their horns locked in conflict you may trace the cause of the combat to one of the three causes of intolerance, religious difference of opinion, economic competition or sex competition. The next time you observe two men engaged in any sort of hostility toward each other, just close your eyes and think for a moment and you may see them, in their transformed nature, very much resembling the male deer shown in the picture above. Off at one side you may see the object of the combat, a pile of gold, a religious emblem or a female, or females. Remember, the purpose of this essay is to tell some of the truth about human nature, with the object of causing its readers to think. Its writer seeks no glory or praise, and likely he will receive neither in connection with this particular subject. Andrew Carnegie and Henry C. Frick did more than any other two men to establish the steel industry. Both made millions of dollars for themselves. Came the day when economic intolerance sprang up between them. To show his contempt for Frick, Carnegie built a tall skyscraper and named it the Carnegie Building. Frick retaliated by erecting a much taller building, alongside of the Carnegie Building, naming it the Frick Building. These two gentlemen locked horns in a fight to the finish, Carnegie lost his mind, and perhaps more, for all we of this world know. What Frick lost is known only to himself and the keeper of the great records. In memory their bones lie bleaching in the sun of posterity. The steel men of today are managing things differently. Instead of locking horns they now interlock directorates, with the result that each is practically a solidified, strong unit of the whole industry. The steel men of today understand the diff. 
Fearance between the meaning of the words competition and cooperation, a difference which the remainder of us would do well to understand, also. In England the men who own the mines and those who run the labor unions locked horns. Had not the cooler heads unlocked those horns the bones of the British Empire, including both the owners of industry and the labor unions, should soon have lain bleaching in the sun. One year of open combat between the unions and the owners of industry, in Great Britain, would have meant annihilation of the British Empire. The other nations of the world would have grabbed all the economic machinery now. Controlled by Britain. Let the leaders of American industry and unionism not forget. Fifteen factors enter into the attainment of success. One of these is tolerance. The other fourteen are mentioned many times in this series of lessons. Intolerance binds man's legs with the shackles of ignorance and covers his eyes with the scales of fear and superstition. Intolerance closes the book of knowledge and writes on the cover open not this book again. The last word has been herein written. It is not your duty to be tolerant, it is your privilege. Remember, as you read this article, that sowing. The seat of intolerance is the sole and exclusive business of some men. All wars and all strikes and all other forms of human suffering bring profit to some. If this were not true there would be no wars or strikes or other similar forms of hostility. In the United States today there is a well-organized system of propaganda, the object of which is to stir up strife and hostility between the owners of industries and those who work in those industries. Take another look at the picture at the beginning of this article and you may see what will happen to all who lock horns in labor disagreements, and remember that it is always the bones of the workers, and not those of the leaders of either the unions or the industries, that lie bleaching in the sun after the fight is over. When you feel yourself preparing to lock horns with someone remember that it will be more profitable if you lock hands instead. A warm, hearty hand. Shake leaves no bones bleaching in the sun. Love is the only bow on life's dark cloud. It is the morning and the evening star. It shines upon the cradle of the babe, and sheds its radiance upon the quiet tomb. It is the mother of art, inspirer of poet, patriot and philosopher. It is the air and light of every heart, builder of every home, kindler of every fire on every hearth. It was the first to dream of immortality. It fills the world with melody, for music is the voice of love. Love is the magician, the enchanter, that changes worthless things to joy, and makes right royal kings and queens of common clay. It is the perfume of the wondrous flower, the heart, and without that sacred passion, that divine swoon, we are less than beasts, but with it, earth is heaven and we are gods. Ingersoll. Cultivate love for your fellow man and you will no longer want to lock horns with him in futile combat. Love makes every man his brother's keeper. Love, indeed, is light from heaven, a spark of that immortal fire with angels shared, by Allah given, to lift from earth our low desire. Devotion wafts the mind above, but heaven itself descends in love, a feeling from the Godhead caught, to wean from self each sordid thought, a ray of him who formed the whole, a glory circling round the soul. Byron. No one has. Given you opportunity? Has IT ever occurred to you to create opportunity for yourself?